Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Old Everald and Young James Talk Politics. I'm here with Everald Compton. How are you, Ev? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm as good as anybody can when we're having floods, uh, uh, you know, the way we've got, and uh, the, the, the world is generally not at peace over Ukraine, and we've got a few politicians playing up as uh, usual. Well, I'm, I'm in good shape, and I think, you know, clearly we should have a yarn about the floods and the implications uh, Thereof, and I, and I note on uh, on Twitter and Facebook uh, that the usual argument is going on about are these are the floods caused by by climate change? And of course, uh, a, a lot of scientific people are saying that. But what is also interesting is that some scientific people, not on the right, on the left, have come out and say, "Now look, while it's true that the world ignores climate change." There were certain extraordinary uh, uh, climate events that just happened to coincide and cause a, a, a rain situation that was absolutely abnormal. But they reckon these were extraordinary events and you couldn't blame the whole thing to climate change. Now, you, your generation, James, is more switched on about climate change than, uh, than mine. The, the older you get, the less you seem to get to, concerned about Climate change. Now, do you believe the, these floods are the direct result of climate change, or did we just have, as some scientists say, an abnormal event? Well, it's. I suppose it depends on how you define the term, like direct result, because you know, mad weather events happen regardless of climate change. That's a known fact. But as the climate, as we have been ruining our climate more and more, we're seeing these once in a hundred flood, you know, the, the 2021 floods were once in a hundred year floods. And now these are once in a thousand year floods. Well, are we going to get a flood crisis next year again? And it's going to be once in 10,000 year floods. Um, I, yeah. I don't believe in coincidences. Um, so I think it would be wrong to say like climate change has no part to play whatsoever. That's just climate denialism. There's no science there. Um, the, the fact that like significant weather events happen regardless of climate change, doesn't rule out climate change as like the contributing factor because climate change doesn't just create fires out of nothing. It just makes disasters worse and worse and worse. So I think like, you know, it's, it's not right to say climate change is the quote unquote cause of every natural disaster in the sense of this natural disaster would not have happened at all but for climate change. But it's, it's the exacerbating factor that turns something from a heavy downpour to this once in a thousand year floods, turned last year's heavy downpour into the once in a hundred year floods, turned last year's fire season into the black summer fires. Um, so to my mind, this is just the latest, you know, in a number of natural disasters this country has faced. Um, because well, negative then, yeah, yeah, what, well. what it means is that we then have to factor into our lives that almost every year uh, we're going to have a drought or a fire or a flood uh, because the, and they'll happen more frequently and more intensively and we better get rid of that. Now, this leads on to uh, where people build their houses. Now, I note in the news overnight that Shane Stone, who, who was... Uh, the uh, Chief Minister of the Northern Territory years ago, Conservative Chief Minister of the Northern Territory, and he, uh, he happened to be one of the backers of the Inland Railway when I started. So, so I know Shane Stone. Now, he's always been a controversial person. But 
But he came out this morning and said uh, he's got no sympathy for people who build houses on the edge of rivers or who build houses, uh, you know, in places that are obviously, uh, you know, going to flood. He's got no time for people who build houses out in the bush where a bushfire is going to get them. And the, he got stuck in the local governments and they're getting stuck into him this morning saying, he said, you blokes are at fault for ever letting these people build these houses in these peculiar places. Why the hell did you let them build there? And he's saying that whole towns and whole suburbs are going to have to be moved because they're in the wrong place. Now, this is pretty revolutionary. Now, what's your reaction to local governments allowing people to build houses where they want to, on a nice little hill near a river surrounded by trees where there's a lovely view, and he's saying, well, one day they're going to get wiped out. Well, what's your view on that? Well, the, the first thing I'll say about Shane Stone is that, uh, as you pointed out, he's the former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory for the Liberal Country Party, and he's now the head of, like, the National Disaster Prevention Authority or whatever it's called. <laughs> Another appointment to one of these top jobs by the LNP, who's just one of their mates rather than someone who's eminently qualified for the job. Now, in terms of those comments, um, I don't like the blaming of the individual there because it, it does speak to a much larger problem of where councils and state governments are allowing land clearing and development to happen. Um, you can't blame someone for wanting to buy a house in a nice place um, that they like the neighbourhood of because, you know, there are only so many houses, so many people and so many places they can live. Um, and who wouldn't want to live with a view overlooking a river or by the water or something like that? You, you can't blame someone for that. What needs to be done is we need to stop the land clearing in floodplains and flood zones. Um, we need to stop this urban sprawl into areas that shouldn't be habited. And it's, you know, it's very... Um, Eastern Europe of me to say this, but what they do in Eastern Europe to maximise um, land space, because obviously a lot of Eastern European countries are quite small, they do their like apartment blocks in the shape of a square with a big courtyard of green area in the middle. So you get lots and lots of living areas, like lots and lots of houses and apartments in the, the square, but still heaps of green area in the middle and it's communal green area. So families can share it, they can walk dogs there, they can kick a ball there, throw a ball there, whatever. Um, now, you know, in Australia, we're too fixated on, oh, I want my block of land and my lawn and my mailbox and my garden and all that, like that very selfish individualistic mindset. But I think the only way to grow a population sustainably is to go to that high-density Eastern European-style living with the apartment blocks in the square with the big green courtyard in the middle because it does still allow people to have that green area. Um, and it means we can put people in places that aren't where you don't have to destroy heaps of forest, bushlands and build in floodplains to get there. Well, well that, that's an interesting comment. I think we ought to, ought to look into that. Now, just two instances. In my 90 years, there have been two towns in, in my region who get flooded every couple of years. And the people clean it out and start all over again. You've got to admire their fortitude. Now, one of them is Gympie in Queensland, where the main town is, you go down a big hill to get into the main town and there's a river, and you go up a big hill to get out of the town. And, and they've been there all the, and they keep rebuilding and rebuilding. Now, I remember one state premier, I can't remember which one, saying, look, 
can you move the, the downtown Gympie up onto the hill somewhere and all that downtown area where the river is, turn it into a park, golf course, do whatever, uh, and, and but move the town up there, and no one has ever attempted to do that. Now, the same with Lismore in New South Wales. It flooded out every time, yet they rebuilt it in the same area and don't move it to, you know, the island. And even the good book, the good Lord said, you know, build upon the rock and not upon the sand. And, and a few Christians haven't taken notice of that. <laughs> now, why, why would you want to live in a community where you know that every couple of years you're going to have to start again? You, you tell me, I can't get my head around. I reckon after flood number two, I'd be gone, mate. Absolutely <laughs> gone someplace else. But what's your view? I mean, you know, the people love that connection to their homeland, you know, wherever that may be. Like you see people who refuse to leave war-torn countries because they share that connection with that place at which they live. And I suppose it's the same with someone who, you know, they might have grown up all their life in Lismore. Um, that, like, that's home to them. They might not want to leave. And they, there's living there is as much a part of their identity as, you know, the sports team they support, the people they associate with, what they do for work. Um, people's connections with land is very, I guess, intrinsic. I mean, like the, the, the Indigenous Australians obviously have, have it right with what to do with Australia being, you know, like nomadic people before um, white colonisation of the land because what the Indigenous Australians did when they were, you know, moving around the land nomadically was understanding the natural cycle of the country, understanding when certain areas are habitable and arable and able to be lived on and when it's time to up sticks and move on and go to somewhere else for the time being. So... Well, that's interesting, James, you're saying white Australians, and we use that racist term, uh, you know, have affinity to where they are, and, and Indigenous people have had an affinity to land hmm. in its great expanse. But, but the common thing is there's an affinity to land, there's an affinity to a place, and I think that's something we ought to cultivate a bit more. Uh, and, and also, the, the you know, the nomadic thing is something uh, that ought to be... Uh, thought about, but, you know, it was one of the reasons why in India, yeah, if you're working down in Bombay, you had to have a house up on the hill in Pune where you could go to in the hot weather and be a bit nomadic. And, and so I think we, uh, uh, the way in which we live uh, 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 needs some reformation. But if you say we've got to stop knocking over trees and putting people on flat land somewhere where it's going to flood and charge them the earth for being there, you know, and so... There's got to be a bit of a reformation in that, but it comes down to the fact that we've got as a nation to say there's going to be a crisis almost every year, whether it's a drought, you know, a flood or a fire, and we better take it more seriously than we do now and just saying, oh, it's happened again. There's got to be some long-term planning going to how we handle it, not only how we try and make them not happen so often, but how we plan to live with them, it's time we got a bit serious, isn't it? Well, you're entirely right. Obviously, priority number one is stopping climate change, shutting down coal mines, um, stop, um, you know, depleting and viking the earth, for, um, all its wonderful goods, stopping polluting, switching to electric cars, you know, making factories green, all those sorts of things um, to cut down on carbon emissions. But number two is, like you say, um, 
that as that old saying is work smarter not harder you know we, we should be rather than waiting for the floods and the fires to come and being reactive being proactive about not putting people into floodplains about bushfire prevention strategies that don't involve um, backburning whole tracts of forests um, because that's not the best way to prevent bushfires um, just just ask you know indigenous like this is another area where we need to mobilize indigenous australian land care uses in bushfires um, because again um, the, the indigenous cultural tradition dating back tens of thousands of years i think knows a bit more about preventing bushfires in this country than people who at best arrived on these shores 250 years ago <laughs> um, sure. so, well, now, now, now this gets us to another point uh, 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 there's a, an argument going on now <clears throat> about the role of governments in immediate alleviation of this thing, handing out money to people who've lost everything and need some money. And, and there's a, obviously in every time uh, people like you and me subscribe money to a, a flood fund or <clears throat> my church is very much involved in handing out money to people in various places who've, who've lost things. But uh, when I mention that to people, a lot of people say, look, that's the responsibility of the government. What the hell is your church doing anything about it? It's up to the government to fork up all the money that's needed because we pay our taxes. Now, there's obviously a balance between all that, but it seems to me that the government at the moment has got a, a, several funds of money stashed away, which you could call a slush fund or an election fund or whatever, which should ought to be immediately used for people being hit by these floods. Now, what's your belief about the role of governments and the role of people like you and me? Well, like, like you say, that the government has that $16 billion election spending slush fund that they're going to use to pork barrel in the lead up to the election. Um, obviously, to, to anyone with a conscience, that money should be in the pockets of the people of Lismore and the people of Queensland right now um, as they recover from these disasters. Now, first and foremost, responsibility should fall on government. To my mind, um, charity, whether it be through a church, through a GoFundMe, whatever, is there to pick up the slack when, um, when governments and institutions fail. Because you can't rely on charity as the first and foremost institution because charity relies on people to give, right? And in a disaster time, um, you know, not, not everyone can give. Like unemployed people may not be able to give money. People who've just lost their houses may not be able to give money. Um, so if you're talking like a huge countrywide national disaster, like the bushfires a year ago, um, you know, there are millions of affected people across the country. You can't rely on everyone individually to stump up and pool their money, whereas government has, you know, an endless stream of money. Uh, the, the whole point of the government is to be able to quickly, effectively, mobilized to protect the civilian population like that that's sort of the the whole bargain behind government you know we give up some of our liberties some of our freedoms some of our choices we elect you and you're meant to take care of us in times of crisis no matter what that crisis may be so you know seeing peter duck and chuck up a gofundme rather than take any action as the government the people with a literal 16 billion dollar slush fund stashed away um to pass the buck on to people like that, it's a bit of a slap in the face to my mind. Well, well I, I take a di di different view of it. I know that you live near mine, me, 
And I, I'm not a political supporter of Peter Dutton, that's quite clear. Now, I think he, in this one, he, he thought he'd do the right thing and start a fund like that, because he's not in charge of that. Hand. That's not his ministerial portfolio, his defence. Some other minister should have been handling that. I honestly think that Dutton thought he was doing the right thing. He now realises that it looked bloody stupid, but I think his original intent was right. I don't often praise him, but I think in this one, he, you know, he might have made a, a blue. Look, I think we've got some, the time's moving on. And, and, and now you're a young bloke, uh, more active in sport than I am now, but I used to be, a, I fancied myself as a great cricketer 70 years ago. Uh, and and two two people died this week, um, Rod Marsh and uh, and Shane Warne. And now not, both of them, I, I agree, were great cricketers. Uh, I didn't ever become a fan of either of them because their personal behaviour off the field and, and on the field uh, didn't ring with me at all. But I've got to say that I've never been seen a bowler who could make the ball break back from the leg stump like. Shane Warnford and Marsh was a jolly good wicketkeeper. Helped, mind you, by a jolly good bowler and Dennis Lilly used to get people to stick the ball to him. But, you know, I, I um, two things, great cricketers. I didn't think uh, they were blokes I particularly wanted to meet. Now, now what's your view? I mean, obviously, um, Rod Marsh was well before my time. So all I can say about Rod Marsh is to be able to keep wicket to Dennis Lilly and Jeff Thompson, people bowling like that, um, that fast and fierce and Australian pace uh, duo. You'd have to have hands of stone to be able to <laughs> have that slapping into your gloves every day, especially, you know, in the era of cricket he played in where they weren't, they didn't have that advanced glove technology and that it was probably just sort of two pieces of cotton on his hands. Um, Shane Warne, on the other hand, was my first favourite cricketer um, growing up, being born in 1999, growing up with that, you know, Ricky Ponting, Shane Warne, Glenn McGrath are a team. And I think what Mark, Mark Taylor said it on Nine News, Nine News is trash, but Mark Taylor was on Nine News today and he said it best um, this morning that you, you sort of thought Shane Warne was untouchable. Um, so it's such a shock to see this because all of his on-field and off-field exploits, and I know you said you didn't approve of his off-field exploits, but w whatever he did on and off the field, he was always untouchable. You know, he'd, he'd get away with everything. He'd pull so much crap. He was um, so, he was always up amongst it, in amongst it. And he'd always come out on top, no matter what he did. Like, no matter how deep a hole he dug for himself, he always came out on top. And so, he, I don't think many bowlers, many cricketers um, with that orbital have been able to, you know, capture the minds and hearts of the viewing public. Like oh, Shane. Well, he was can't miss TV. He was can't miss TV. Um, and so to see someone, such an icon, someone who so many people gather around their TVs just to watch, um, to 52, like 52. Very, terribly early age to young, I mean, 40 years, uh, uh, you know, younger than me. But a very interesting wisdom, W-I-S-D-E-N, the cricket Bible that I've been reading all my life, picked the five a few years ago, picked the five greatest cricketers of all time. And Warren was one of the five. There was Don Bradman, there was Jack Hobbs, the English opening batsman, and there were two West Indians, Garfield Sobers and Vivian Richards, great batsmen, and, and in Sobers' case, great <coughs> all-rounders. 
that they're full, and then Shane Warne, and that is that there's only one bowler out of five, and all that proves is that people go along to watch a batsman. And, mm -hmm. and they don't take into account that the bowler could be a very cunning bloke. All they want to see is the batsman hitting fours and sixes. So it's very interesting that out of the greatest cricketers of all time, only one bowler made it. I found that, that interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, Rod Marsh, too, 71, which is really young to um, take the next yeah. step, at, you know, in this day and age. So um, just 52 and 71. That, like, it, it is interesting because people say cricket's a batsman's game. And I think people always have said cricket's a batsman's game. Because like you say, people love seeing big fours and big sixes. And so to, to see a bowler who could uh, put bums in seats the way people normally think of batsmen doing, um, just uh, like such like, again. I'm, I'm just absolutely floored by it. I'm really, really um, taken by shock because, um, like again, see see like a hero of my childhood like that to, to go so soon. And I mean, I think everyone around Australia. Uh, the, well, here's the thing with Warney. Like, you know, if, if you're not a rugby league fan, you might not know who Cameron Smith and Jonathan Thurston are. If you're not an AFL fan, you might not know who. Um, uh, Buddy Franklin is or uh, who, you know, Jason Ackermanis is. But even if you're not a cricket fan, I think everyone around this country knows who Shane Warne is, um, such oh, as sort of the legend of the man. That's true. And to understand now, we're running out of time, Jane. We usually cover three subjects. We only cover two, or the floods were important. And now it's important. I think we better get to the, you know, the bad person of the week and the, uh, and, and the, um, you know, the good, uh, you know, person of the week to, to, to <coughs> finish them up now. It's, it's, it's pretty hard to, to work out who is the bad person. I mean, obviously, Vladimir Putin, if you took a worldwide poll, it'd be Putin, and I think I picked on him last week, and he deserves being picked on. And I also picked on Joe Biden, whom I believe has been as weak as water of this. But I think Joe Biden has smelt the political water in America and decided that most Americans don't want to get involved in the Ukraine war and couldn't care less. Therefore, he's got to watch his back uh, with the congressional elections coming up and uh, and what have you. But you'd have to get, you know, both those. But I'd also pick here in Australia, Alan Tudge, that, uh, you know, the, the former cabinet minister who's now retired after these accusations of uh, misbehaviour with women, even though a report uh, uh, declared him to be innocent. I, uh, uh, I think... He did the right thing in, in saying, well, I'm, I'm going to stay off the cabinet and I'm going to try and win my seat. And I think he now might find that the women of that electorate turn on him en masse and he might have a big job holding his seat. But I thought he was a symbol of this whole issue of sexual harassment, you know, in the workplace. He's another symbol of it. So I didn't weep for him one tiny little bit. How did you see it? Yeah, I mean, just to, you know, another big-footed, honking clown jumping out of the burning ramshackle clown car that is this government. I mean, the it's just stunning. And, I mean, I, there'd be skeletons in the closet of the Labor Party, of the Greens, of One Nation, probably plenty of skeletons in Clive Palmer's party too. Um, so, you know, let, again, we're, we're not pretending this is just one party who has an issue with men walking the halls of power and treating women terribly and, doing these horrible things, but um, this government as a whole, um, you know, in a time of supposed enlightenment that we live in, because we look back on sort of the 
you know, the 1900s or whatever. Well, you know, they didn't even allow women to vote then. How crazy is that? And yet there are so many people in this current government whose attitudes towards women are still um, stuck in the 1900s like that, who yeah. think, you know, that they have that entitlement to power and that entitlement to power over women. Um, and I think Tudge, like you say, is just the latest in this in this book. Um, but right, well, now, who's your runner of the week? Um, so my my zero of the week is um, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, Bevan Shields. Um, so it came out after last week. So last week on Monday, the train shut down by the government. The inter like the, the chat, the internal chat room, of the Sydney Morning Herald um, writing group or whatever was leaked, and it revealed Bevan Shields, the editor, telling everyone to call a strike uh, before it was known whether it was a strike or whether it was a lockout. Um, now, obviously, it came out that it was a lockout and it was done by the state government, not letting the workers come to uh, come to work, as we discussed last week. Now, Bevan Shields didn't apologise for doing this because the Sydney Morning Herald that morning was running stories about it being a strike. Um, now, Shields didn't apologise for misleading the entire reading population of the Sydney Morning Herald until 5.30pm on Friday yesterday. Now, I don't know about you, but if you're going to say such a brazen lie to get something so wrong, um, I know it's Media 101 to sort of put up big headlines and then put the apology in small print, but it, it's just disgraceful to see the editor of such a quote-unquote respected uh, national masthead um, getting something so wrong and then sort of hiding his apology 5.30 p.m. on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, it, well, it just, well, yeah. That's true. And, and look, I, I used to subscribe to the Sydney Morning Herald and to the Australian. <coughs> I've unsubscribed both a year ago because I think they both print rubbish. And I searched the, the net for good journalists writing things in, no matter who they're writing for, because I've given all those guys away. Right, what's your good guy of the week? Um, my, my hero of the week, it, I mean, keeping it domestically, um, I, I've got to give it to SES volunteers um, around the, you know, around the eastern seaboard, uh, going above and beyond to save people's lives and save people's property in such a flood-prone disaster. And I mean, like we discussed earlier, you know, um, you, you being an SES volunteer is practically a full-time commitment now, with everything going on around the country and the regularity with which it happens. So. Um, to my mind, you know, they're very brave putting their lives on the line um, to rescue people in times like this. It can't be easy. It can't be dangerous. And they see a lot of crap. So I think we should, um, you know, everyone around the country should just think of the SAS volunteers and think of what a good job they're doing right now. How about you? Agreed totally, James. And I, I was going to have to tell you a similar thing. This person doesn't belong to the SES, but my home was having water roaring down the hill through two fences of mine. And luckily, I only got into my garage. I was able to divert it and eventually went in the right places. But and that, a, a, a fellow who lives 100 metres from me had to walk around in the rain with his umbrella. He could see that I was in strike, but not the <laughs> pinprick of a strike I was in compared to the people living beside the river. And but this fellow walked 100 metres around in the rain to see if Helen and I were okay. He knew we were a couple of oldies and he walked around to say, well, I, I've come around to see if I can help. I don't even know the bloke's name. And so there, there are a hell of a lot of good people in the community out there. 
you know, we might think the world is full of rotten, but they're a lot of good guys, aren't they? Yeah, well, exactly right. I mean, it's a shame that it takes times like these to bring people together. Um, but whenever these things happen, it is nice to see the camaraderie that people can show. And it, it can be a nice reminder of what good there is in the world, um, which is heartening in sort of the times we live. So, yeah. yeah. Well, now, I think we've just about done our half hour, James, and when we've uh, the, the, talked about some important things and we'll be at it again uh, next week. Well, one of the things I, I want to address in the next few weeks is that uh, the budget is coming up on March the 29th, the earliest budget we've had in a long time. It used to be in May, you know, but brought forward because there's obviously going to be an election in May. And so Josh Frydenberg and, uh, is now working on this budget, which is obviously the plank on which the government hopes to win the election. They've just about lost it in every other way. And so I think they're going to hand out a lot of goodies on the 29th of March, uh, an election-winning budget. I'd like to talk about each week some of the things we think they might trot out, you know, in order yep. to win. It's probably one of the greatest election budgets of all time. You've got a government on the bones of their backside in terms of what they've achieved, and now they're going to try and win it with a budget, and I'll be very interested in how they... And I'm thinking in my own way, so we should start to have a look at some of those issues, shouldn't we? That sounds good. Um, and, I mean, we'll see that, you know, what promises that inevitably they won't deliver, but they will be promises um, that yeah. the government... Um, puts up in the next week and see how we can dissect that. But, of course, that's pending, you know, no big breaking news stories happening between yeah. now and then, which, you know, every <laughs> every week we promise we'll talk about something next week and every week it gets bumped off. <laughs> I'm sure something will crop well. I greatly enjoy talking to every week, James, and we'll keep it up. Uh, bye for now and we'll be, on, we'll be online next week. Yep, as always, and I hope, you know, all our listeners around New South Wales, Queensland, all the flood effect areas are safe. So thanks for listening, everyone, and have a great week. Ciao.